Hello. This sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So, if you are not a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We are glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. Really glad to be with you. I want to give you a quick update. I know many of you um, have been praying for our son Ezra. I know a lot of you, even on Thursday, spent some time fasting, um, and one of the things we, we asked you all to be praying um, for Ezra, uh, he has leukemia and is being treated for that, um, after his first round of chemo, our desire was that he'd be able to come home for a little bit, and his counts um, have not been rising, and so we've asked, asked you all to be praying that he would get to come home, and, and um, uh, when was it, Friday? Thir- oh yeah, Thursday. You all fasted on Thursday, and um, the doctors decided on Thursday, even those counts were not coming up, to, to let him come home, and so he was, uh, got to come home on Thursday. Um, we just see as an answer of prayer. Uh, uh, and God's kindness to us, and so He spent um, the last several uh, last couple of days with us has, have felt like Christmas Day, um, really. It just uh, all of us together. Um, there's an excitement. We don't know really why, but we're just like, hey, we all get to be together. And so um, He's been with us, and will be with us probably through the end of the week, um, and uh, go back on the 27th for a second round of chemo. So thanks for praying. Thanks for. Um, checking in. So many of you have, have um, checked in and, and told us you're praying. We're really thankful for that. Um, please continue. There's that. Um, this past June, we celebrated, uh, there's no transition, so I'm just jumping in. Do you, you see that? I'm horrible at transitions. We'll just move right to the next thing. Uh, this past June, we celebrated our 11th birthday as a church, and from the beginning days of the town church, our desire has been that we would hold as primary the Word of God, that our eyes would be fixed on, on God, and that we would see more and more of Him through His Word, that we would study it more and more and more. And my personal desire has been that, we, that I would be able to walk through the entire counsel of God's Word in my time here at the Town Church, as long as you all will have me. My joke has always been, maybe it's not a joke, that Eric would be pushing me up here in a wheelchair for me to um, present my last sermon on lamentations or whatever it is that we're working through at the time. Um, I would die. He would just do the funeral right after that and bury me, and we, we'd be on. You guys would start over with Genesis. But that's been my desire from the very beginning. And, and as I think through that and think about what, uh, what it is that I want to, us to see as a church from the Word of God. My, my mind goes to what Paul said in Romans 15, that he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The things that have already been written in former days were written for our instruction. They're not just written and then shoved in an old book that we don't look at. They're written for our instruction, but not just for our instruction, that through the encouragement and and through the endurance of the Scriptures, we would have what? Hope. That there would be a a, a hope, a a longing in us. And so this morning, um, we we began a study, a 10-week study of the New Testament book of 1 John. And if you've been around uh, the town church for very long, one thing you um, know of us is that we have very creative people who are among us, artists, creative people um, who do some uh, amazing things. Andrew Steger, who um, has since moved to, to Arkansas, uh, designed the, the graphic that you see um, right 
There, um, right there, um, and, and I'll tell you about it more. If, you're, if that overwhelms you and you're like, I don't even know what that means, that's fine. I didn't either, so he talked to me about it. I'll, I'll talk through it as we work through. So what I want to do in the very beginning here is just give some introductory insight into this letter, 1 John, and, and where we're headed over the next 10 weeks, and then jump into the first four verses as we move through asking God to guide us in the beginning. So that's what I want to do right now. I just want to pause And I want to ask God to guide us over these next 10 weeks that we'd be drawn in to see more of him as we look at his word. So let me just take a a second here to to pray for us. God, we understand that you have given us your word as a gift. You have given us your word as, um, as a way that we can know you. And so my prayer this morning for my heart, for all of us here, is that we would be drawn in to see, just like Eric said, that your glory, and we'd be drawn into to see that you're a God who loves us and desires relationship with us. My prayer um, for, for so many, I don't know where, where everyone is in, in the room, but if they've walked in thinking, I haven't looked at my Bible in, in months, my prayer is that you would give them a desire to, to look at your word, to see more of you. For those who have read and studied and, and just ha- had a regular rhythm daily but have grown um, cold, I pray that you would um, revive our hearts to see more of you. And everyone in between, God, I pray that we would see more of you as we look into this beautiful letter that's so, uh, so helpful to see that we, can, we have a God who's knowable. Um, we need your help in that, we pray. Amen. Um, if you didn't get one of these and you want one, they're on the back table. It's got the text, uh, the ESV text in it, and then beside it, uh, places for you to write notes. I'll have a lot of stuff that we're just going to go through this morning. If you want to get one of those, they're on the back table there in the lobby, and you can grab one. Um, as I said earlier, many of you know the story of the town church. We planted this church um, in 2010 as a part of a movement of churches planting churches. That was our desire to be a part of a, a movement of churches planting churches. I love the local church, and my, I'll be honest, my love for the local church has grown it's growing, especially in these last months as my, uh, our son has been battling cancer. To see the, the love of you all wrapping around us has been beautiful. So I have a, a deep affection for the local church. Now, do we have problems as a church? Don't, don't answer so quickly. We, we do, right? We absolutely do. You could probably name them. Here are your problems. And, and as elders, we would say, we understand that and we're working to, to bring some resolution to that. So we, we get that. We understand that uh, us, uh, we as a local church, we're not perfect, um, and we never have been, and we, we never will be, but our eyes are fixed on Jesus. That's our hope. But from the very beginning of the church, the church, after the gospel accounts in the New Testament, the book of Acts, um, is the story of how the church started, how churches were planted. Even in the book of Acts, we see problems, right? The church didn't start off great. It didn't start off with like, hey, we're perfect and we've sort of gone away since then. No, we see in the very beginning of the church that they had problems. Why is that? Because it's full of people like me, right? And you, it's full of people who are broken. And so after the gospel accounts and after the book of Acts, what do we have in the Bible, in the New Testament? We have lots of letters that are written to individuals and written to churches to help resolve some of the problems that are going on in the church, right? These were often letters written to younger church planters or churches um, to address the problems that they were sorting through. We got to remember, 
Whatever was written in the past was written to teach us that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we would have hope. And so that's where we are, right? That we would have hope, that we would learn from 1 John and other letters. And we see similarities between what we see in the letter that we're about to jump into and what we're currently experiencing as a local church and as the American church. And as we're open to the Holy Spirit working in us to open our eyes to see the ways we can be growing in our affections for Jesus, our affections for one another, and representing God to the world. That's our hope as we work through this. So as we do with every book, we'll just begin with a little bit of insight into the book. We've already mentioned it, but it is, um, it is a letter. So what's the genre? It's a letter. It's a letter, um, and it's unlike some of the other letters in the New Testament. There's some significant differences between 1 John and some of the other letters that have been written. Here, here's, here are a few of them. There are no names mentioned in 1 John. Right? So there, it's not written to a specific person. There's no greeting Right? There's no, um, I, John, have written to you about these things. There's no greeting. There's no salutation. There's no ending, like, you know, peace out or mic drop or any, anything like that. It simply starts off that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen, just jumps right into the, the content. So it's different from any other letter, but we would still say it's a letter, and there's a couple reasons for that. First, throughout the letter, the writer says, we are writing these things so that you, right? So it's clear that the, the author is writing something for the recipient, for the, the reader to, to receive, or I'm writing it you because, right? It's written in this plural sense. We, I'm writing or we're writing so that you, so that you as a group of people. So it's a letter. And that way we see it. The second reason we would say it's a letter is because the author shows great affections for the recipients, there's affectionate tone there. It's not a theological treatise. It's not, it's not an academic endeavor where, where we're get, getting all of this information, but it's information for information's uh, sake. It's a letter written to a beloved people. It's an affectionate address. We see throughout the letter, my little children or, or beloved. In fact, more than 15 times in these five short chapters, we see that kind of language addressed in this affectionate First John is a letter. So keep that in mind as we read through. Keep it in mind that it's written, it's a personal thing, written to a people. And if it's a letter, who wrote it? Now this is debated, who's the author? It's debated back and forth, um, uh, and the author doesn't state his name, and I read and read and read, and, and there's lots of information out there, there's debates about who the author is, and it goes back and forth. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I'll point us to a few things that I think will, will show us, solidify the argument. Uh, the opening sentence of of 1 John and also the gospel account of John, which we worked through um, all of last year, are nearly identical. You see some opening um, words that are similar. Do you see that? In the beginning was the word, is how the gospel account of John starts, which jumps right in. And then 1 John, the letter, that which was from the beginning, goes on to talk about the word of life. So very similar in the approach of how they're, they're written, which leans, uh, would lean us towards seeing John as the author. There, there are more technical um, things to point out there, but I, I won't get into that. And I'll just say it this way. Church history has pointed us, has shown us uh, that John is the author of both the gospel account as well as the letter for years and years and years. And so in, in following that, we follow in the steps of, of church history as we make the claim that John is the author of the letter. But what John? Right? Which John is it? Right? Because we don't get the last name. 
Not John Smith or John File, um, different spelling, but it, it, what is it, right? It, what, who is this John? Uh, John, if we follow the um, account that it's from the gospel account of John, was one of Jesus' disciples. He's from Galilee, um, and he's the son of Zebedee. He's the younger brother of James. Uh, Jesus, for some reason, calls these brothers the sons of thunder, um, he's an eyewitness, um, uh, uh, he has an eyewitness account of the events of the life of Christ. Keep that in mind as we're reading through this letter. That he's got an eyewitness account of the events uh, of the life of Christ. And John himself is the self-described disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? He, we saw that as we walked through the book of John. John chapter 21, 20 and, and, and verse 24. John stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. And not just that, but Jesus then entrusted his earthly mother to John's care. John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Peter and John, a friend of his, Peter and John ran to the tomb when they heard it was empty. And John tells us, just like you would tell us, that he got there first. Right? I'm, I was faster. I, I got there first. And so we see these, these details of who John is. It's this John that recognizes Jesus after the resurrection. And he says what? He says, it is the Lord. Jesus standing on the shore tells, tells them where to fish. And John tells us very detailed that, that they caught 153 fish. It's that John. That's the author of this letter that we're leaning on in that direction. And if John wrote it, um, the next question I think we ask is, what is the setting? At what setting did he write this letter in? After Christ's ascension, John remained in Jerusalem. Um, we know that John was a pillar of the church. Paul says that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, that he was a pillar of the church. And, and there's some speculation that John remained in Jerusalem un, until the conflict occurred, leading to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And so John flees to Ephesus um, with, with a lot of other people, and he's there until AD 117. So he's probably the oldest remaining disciple, apostle, who's, who's writing, making his letters some of the last letters we have in Scripture. And John's not the only one who fled to Jerusalem. Many other Christians did as well, and some of them settled in Ephesus. Um, we know that, that uh, from Paul's writings to the Ephesian churches that the Christians faced all, sorts, um, uh, faced all sorts of things there. One of the things he says is they, they faced idolatry. The Temple of Diana was in Ephesus. There's superstition. There is material wealth in Ephesus. Ephesus was full of sexual immorality and all sorts of bizarre rituals. The people were addicted to magic and sorcery. Luke tells us in Acts 19.19 19, that, that these Christians were addicted to these things. They had to burn all of their books. Ephesus was um, likely the setting where John was trying to start churches and build relationships and see disciples made for, for Jesus. So he's writing in that context. Let me just put it this way for us. Let's bring it into us. The setting in which John was writing, though it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago, was not that much different than our own setting, was it? Just think about this. Idolatry, superstition, material wealth, sexual immorality, right? There, there's idolatry in each of our hearts in some way. Right? We have that to some extent. Superstition, now you may not say, well, I'm I'm not, you know, I'm superstitious. You would probably say, I'm not superstitious. But just think through it. it. 
We, we have this mentality, if I do the right things at the right times and say the right things in the right way, some higher power will help me out. We, we have that thought. Some of you may have walked in here today thinking, if I start my week off here, things will be better. Now, there's some truth to that because we're with the, the people of God and we're, we're worshiping the God who made us, but, but, but there's superstition sort of mixed into to what we do, material wealth and sexual immorality. Do I, do I even need to elaborate on that in our culture today? All right, these are heart issues. That's why we can look at the letter that John has written and our own context and see the similarities because they're heart issues. These are heart issues, not cultural issues, heart issues. That's the setting in which John was writing. And if John's writing to the church in Ephesus, and in Ephesus during this day is similar to ours, and those things are going on, why is John writing? What was the purpose for his writing? What was the purpose? The letters we have in the New Testament were not letters often between friends to catch up on old times. These are not pen pals writing back and forth to see what your favorite color is and all of that. These are written because some issue in the church was was happening among the people in the church. And John's letter was no different. There was opposition in the churches where John was writing to. There, There were people in Asia who were enemies of the church. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, we see Paul talking to these leaders of the church in Ephesus about people from inside the church turning on the people in the church to attack them. So there's opposition there in the church that he's writing about. Most New Testament letters are written about specific problems, a sexual sin or or gospel issues or or something like that that that's happening in the church. In 1 John, we don't see a specific physical or moral sin listed, named, labeled. We We don't see it. 1 John is a letter that's written to several churches in Ephesus, but it's difficult to see what John's writing against because he doesn't call it by name. Scholars have tried to pinpoint what this opposition is and and label it. We like that, right? We like labels. Well, that's that, and that's this, and that's that. There's no label that they can nail down. John didn't come out with any specific sin or any specific person that he's writing against. It's clear, though, that, that he's writing... Um, about a group of people who for some reason have broken away from the church. First John chapter 2, verse 19, which we'll get to here in a couple of weeks. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued to be with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are, all are not of us. So there's some people, we don't know why, that have gone out. They have left. They thought they were in, they they are out. But John doesn't give us reasons for their departure. He just gives us the facts. They left. They're no longer a part of what's going on in the true church. There's uh, some kind of opposition going on. And so how does John combat it? He combats it by writing a letter to the church, a letter addressing several Several repeated themes. If you've read through the letter of 1 John, you're probably thinking, didn't I already read this? Because there's so many repeated themes throughout the letter that that will challenge and convict, and my hope is that it would encourage us as we go. So if you've read this letter, you'll know that John uses repetition to highlight the, the theme. So let me just point out three that you'll see over and over and over again. In fact, I, I'd encourage you, if you do get one of these, or if you're um, someone who writes in your Bible, um, uh, then um, you, you can, uh, I'd encourage you to write or, or circle or underline um, some of these themes. You'll see them stand out over and over and over. The first one, 
we see is this word know or to know, knowledge. It's in there throughout the letter. It's used in the book over and over. In fact, in these five short chapters, this idea of knowing or knowledge is used 39 times. Uh, there's some thought that, that the people John was writing to were, were struggling with Gnosticism. Maybe you've heard that word before, this, this, this idea of Gnostic, uh, Gnosticism, a term that, that comes from uh, the word to know. Here's what Gnostics believe, just very simply. We could go on and on for this for days, but just very simply that, that God was knowable only through the spiritual realm and that anything physical was evil. So we, we push against or we push away from the physical world. We only go to the spiritual, and that's how God is knowable. That salvation came to a people through some internal divine light that was inherent, inherent to the human. To know God was, was to only know him spiritually and, and didn't involve anything physical. So it didn't involve a repentance of sin. It didn't involve a, a faith or a leaning toward Jesus or, or a way of following him, a way of life of following him. So many people believe that John was combating um, this Gnosticism with this repeated word, to know. He's just putting it in their face. Oh, you want to know? I'll show you how you can know. And it's not just spiritual. There there are ways that we see this. But thanks be to God. Listen, take a deep breath, Vince. Thanks be to God that he's knowable, right? That we can know God. He's revealed himself to us through Jesus, that we can know him, that that we can be confident that we do know God and that he does know us. And and there are ways in which that knowing him is made evident, not just spiritually. There are ways that that knowing him and, and him knowing us is made evident in the ways that we live, where spiritual and physical are not disconnected. They're brought together. And so my hope in our time together over these next weeks is that we'll see this connection between, between who God is and then how we are to live, how we're, how we're to walk that out. And we're in a season in, in, in our culture and in this time of life where many people are struggling to know what it means to be a Christian. What does that look like? And what ends up happening is because of past hurts or, or, or past abuses, um, at least from the perspective of the person, and maybe those things are, are there, but, but these abuses or hurts that are there, what it means to be a Christian then is determined by the individual. This is what I think it means based on how I've wor- worked things out and how I've lived things out, based on how I, I've lived or, or not based on how I've lived at all. But John helps us with this. I think he, he brings us in by giving us ways in which we can know that we know. We can know that we are in him. That, that he does know us, that we do know him. Tests, if you will, that provide confidence to our knowing God. Not something that we've just made up based on our feelings. Another repeated word um, is love. Again, if you've read the letter, you, you've already seen it. This word love in these five short chapters is used 45 times. God is the very definition of love. He's shown that love to us through the giving of his son, Marks of a true Christian are a love for God and love for others. Forty-five times in five short chapters, this word love is used. Underline it, circle it, look at, look at where it's used over and over. And the third repeated theme in this book is not something we like to talk about as an American church. It's not a theme that we, we like to lean on. It's a theme that is making an exit from many churches, and that's the theme of sin. Nearly 30 times in these chapters, John uses the word sin, and nearly 30 more times he makes reference to something related to sin. Walking in darkness, hatred of your brother, 
Hatred of God, murder, unrighteousness, all of these things. So close to 60 times in these five chapters, John brings to our attention this idea of sin. A significant theme in this short letter is obedience to the ways in which God has called us to live. It's ways in which we know that we know God. The test, if you will, whether or not you are a Christian, a true Christian, if, if obedience, the overflow of your love for and knowledge of God is there. In chapter 2, we'll see here in a few weeks, John tells us that if we say we know God, we must walk in the same ways that Jesus walked. There's obedience that's there. It's a mark of a follower of Jesus. And I understand that this is a critique on the church and has sometimes been a critique on our church. That we focus too much, we make too big a deal about sin, we, we talk too much about it, we confess sin every week, and you just talk about sin all the, all the time, you focus too much on sin. But listen, in God's kind providence, in God's kind providence, we have an inspired book of the Bible written specifically to point to this theme. So as Christians, we cannot say that, that, that we know God and we love him and, and, then, and then live however we want, right? I know God, I love him, but I'm going to do whatever I want. Obedience isn't that big of a deal. A true Christian cannot get to the place of thinking, and John will tell us this, that I don't sin or I don't think much about it. That's not the direction I lean because in doing that, you make, from John's words, you make God a liar and the truth is not in you. So this, this theme is pushed over and over. And I'll just warn you now, right? If you want to sort of silently slip out now, I'll just warn you, caution you now that, that a significant theme in the letter that we'll, we'll work through, 1 John, a significant theme is sin, repentance from a sin of sin and obedience to Jesus, a moving toward Jesus in obedience, a, a payment for for sin by Jesus, forgiveness of sin because of Jesus. It's a major theme that we're going to hit over and over and over. My hope is to not, to not squash us all down and say you're sinners and you're ugly and you're disgusting, but my hope is to say we do sin and we need a Savior and we have one, and it's Jesus, so that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus. So those are, are the three major themes in this letter. They're not disconnected. They're intentionally woven together. So we don't look at these things and say, well, how do those things fit together? No, they're, they're intentionally woven together. And so back to the graphic that Andrew has put together for us for our title, um, which is No Love, bringing some of those themes together. You see this heart, this symbol of love coming down from the eternal Father. I don't know if you're, you're like this. If you see an image, you want to know what it's about, so you can kind of uh, put some um, uh, something to that. So you see that the heart, the symbol of love coming down from the, the eternal Father into the mind of the follower of Christ. And because that love is shown from the Father through the shed blood of His Son, so you see the hands at the top going out through the shed blood of His Son, we are able to know God, the very God who is love. And there are those who reject that love. There are those who would reject the love of God, and, and they are, to use John's words, in darkness. You see those images on the side? Those are faces looking out in the darkness. They are looking out, looking away from the love of God shown through Jesus. And it's as we receive the love of God and we know God and his forgiveness through Jesus that we're then able to reach out and extend love toward others. You see the hands at the bottom, extending love toward others. 
And so that, that's what Andrew's put together. I think the, it brings these three major themes intricately woven together to us. But listen, what is the glue? Or maybe I should say, who is the glue? Who is the glue? It's Jesus, right? This isn't some like, hey, we've got to live better lives or we've got to do better things. Jesus is the glue. Just think, think through this. Let's settle into this. How is the penalty of our sin paid? Jesus, right? How then are we able to know God? Through Jesus. But how? Because in love, Jesus gave his life to pay the penalty of our sin. And if we know Jesus and love Jesus, we do what? We follow Jesus. We keep his commands. The first letter of John is written so that we would see more of and make much of Jesus. And we see it from the very beginning words in the letter. We see it from the very beginning. So I want to look at the first four verses of the book to see Jesus just very quickly, just opens us up to see what we're about to get into in the coming weeks. The very one who in love pays the penalty of our sins so that we can know and follow and have faith and obey God. John has brought the opportunity of correction to the church in Ephesus and by God's grace to us as well. And so how does this letter begin? If you look at 1 John, it's, it's near the end of your Bibles. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let me read these, three, uh, these four verses, and then I, I want to point out four things very briefly that, that get us to see more of Jesus. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Very quickly, first, Jesus has always existed as God. We see this in the very beginning. He just starts with Jesus. He's always existed as God. John says that which was from the beginning, which mirrors the gospel account of John that begins, in the beginning was the word, which mirrors what? How the very Bible begins. In the beginning, God, right, created. That, that which was from the beginning is Jesus. He has always existed as God. There, there, there is not a time when Jesus did, did not exist in all authority as God. That's how John's letter starts. It starts us with Jesus. Look at Jesus. Secondly, in his existence as God, he became flesh. Right? Jesus has always existed as God, and in that existence, in space and time, he became flesh. John says, along with the other disciples, that they have experienced it. They've, they've felt it. They've heard it. They've seen it. When you want to tell someone about a remarkable experience, what do you do? You tell them uh, using all of the senses, right? You don't just say, hey, in passing. You don't just say, hey, I went skydiving yesterday and just walk on. No, you say, I went skydiving yesterday. And the, let me tell you about the rush of wind that you hear. As you, I've never been skydiving, so you can correct me later if you've been skydiving. The rush of wind that you hear, you know, past your ears, you step out, the way that your stomach feels as you take that first lunge off the plane. I don't know if you do that, but probably you step out, right? Or, or the way that you had to 
change your pants at the bottom or whatever that is. Like you just talk about all of the senses, the experiences, so that someone would, would know what you're talking about. So John says in verse 1, we've heard, we've seen with our own eyes, we've touched with our hands, we have been with, and he calls Jesus what? The word of life. Jesus, right? We've high-fived, chest-bumped, we've hugged and slug-bugged, and we've done all of those things. We've seen and heard and touched, and we've done all of that. In space and time, Jesus became flesh. He became human. John keeps going in verse 2, the life that appeared, we've seen him and we testify to it or we're witnesses to Jesus. Not only have we seen him and we've heard him and we've touched him, not just that, but we want everyone else to know about him. We want to tell others about what? Look at verse 2, about the eternal life that comes with the Father from the very being and appeared to us in the human form of Jesus. This is the incarnation uh, or this is the doctrine of the incarnation, a big word. Um, it, it just means that he became human. He became flesh. We'll get into to why that's important later in the weeks to come. Just very simply saying, I'll say it this way. He had to become flesh so that in love he could give his life to pay the penalty of our sins so that we could know God. John's point in these beginning words of this letter are these, if, if I could simplify it. Look at Jesus. Starts with Jesus. Look at Jesus. It all is moving in that direction. Friends, I want to tell you that, that, that you know this. I know this. We've walked through a lot in life over the last couple of years, haven't we? The ups and downs are all over the place of where we've been. And even in the last days of where, what we've walked through as a family, and some of you have walked through some really hard things over the last weeks as well. But, but hear this. I need to hear this. Jesus is the same. came to be near us. He came to be like us. He came not just to be near us and be like us, but to pay the penalty of sin for us. He came to open up an opportunity for us to approach the throne of grace and confidence to know the love of God. In his existence, he became flesh. And then third, because of his flesh, we have fellowship. John says in verse 3 that we've seen and heard Jesus. We proclaim to you, Jesus, why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And that's not John screaming some elitist statement about an inside club. If you do the right things and say the right things, you can be on the inside with us. Because what does John say at the end of verse 3? He says, our fellowship is not just some inside club, but it's with the Father and it's with the Son, Jesus Christ. So really what John is saying is because Jesus has always been God and he came in the flesh to be near us, we have unity, we have fellowship, we're drawn in to be a family together, fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with one another. We're all in this together. It's not some elitist club. If you've been called in, you've been called in. So listen to that. Jesus, the eternal God, did not come to earth in the flesh to be near us so that we could have individual salvation. That's not why he came. He didn't come so that you could have something personal just for you, some individual Christianity. There's no such thing biblically. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as Christianity alone. Right? Christianity for the introvert. It's a good book. Good book deal right there, but there's no such thing as that. We're saved into a family, and fellowship with one another is a necessary part of the Christian life, not an optional add-on for the extrovert. 
Jesus came in the flesh so that we could be together with Jesus. Our fellowship with God, our fellowship with the Son, fellowship with one another is, is, just an, is not just a necessary requirement. John says that we'll, we'll end it here. In fellowship with him, what? Our joy is complete. It's not hey, do these things and you'll be on the right track. It's not some drudgery. Our fellowship with him, in that, our joy would be complete. Tells us in verse 4, he writes all of this, writes all of this, what what we've just seen and what we're about to see, so that our joy would be complete, that his joy would be complete by the fact that believers would join in that fellowship with the Father and the Son and not break away on their own to lean on something else. Friends, when we wake in the morning, Do we sigh a deep breath of sweet peace knowing that we are a part of the fellowship of God, the God of the universe who has a perfect plan sent from the eternal Son to to be with us, to taste death for us? When we gather with other believers like we're doing here in fellowship together, listen, you may not believe this, but, but it's true. When we gather like this, there is something sacred happening. We're gathering in to, to be a people together. We're entering into something unusual. We're entering into something altogether unique and altogether ph- phenomenal. We get to be in fellowship with one another, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we've offered, but because of a loving Father who's invited us in to know Him. And in knowing Him as love, our joy is what? Made complete. We have joy that's complete, and together we get to spend then the next uh, several weeks as a church family seeing and recognizing and recalling this unique and phenomenal experience of fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, the book of First John. So can I encourage you to be reading and rereading and rereading the book of First John in these next weeks? I, uh, if you read it once a day, in one sitting, it'll take you about 16 minutes. Right? I, I did it. So just sit down. What if you did that daily? 16 minutes of reading to see some of these themes coming together. I'd, I'd encourage you to do that. want to um, uh, close our time thinking about this. John says this later in chapter 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What's that mean? He, he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice so that we could have the favor of God and he, w- he would get the wrath all poured on him so that we could get God's favor. Our joy would be complete. He is the propitiation for our sins so that we could be together in fellowship. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, we would like to invite you in to remember and celebrate what Jesus has already accomplished for you. Jesus gave his life. His body was broken on a cross. His blood was shed on that same cross to atone for your sins so that you could be in right relationship with God, that the the throne of grace would be accessible to you. I pray for us, and then um, we'll continue in that response. Let's pray. God, you have given us your word, and we know that everything that was written in the past was written to teach us that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scripture, we would have hope. So that's my prayer this morning, that the things that have been written in the past hundreds of years ago by a disciple, by someone who was walking with you, someone who had seen and heard and touched Jesus, 
that he's given us words that we can see that they're, they're instructive for us, but not just instructive, but they've given us hope. And so my, my prayer is that over these next weeks that we would be growing in our affections for Jesus, that we would know the love of the Father to a sinful people like us who are in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. I pray that all of those themes would come crashing together, that we would believe the gospel and celebrate all the more. Ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.